This podcast contains explicit language. If you want to know how explicit, keep listening. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 2nd, 2023. On this week's show, Kevin Clark of ESPN will be here to talk about Sunday night's battle between Taylor Swift and Zach Wilson in New Jersey and the Bills-Dolphins fight for AFC supremacy. The Washington Post Ben Golliver will also join us to discuss Damian Lillard's move to the Milwaukee Bucks, Drew Holiday's jaunt to the Boston Celtics, and what it all means for the NBA title race. Finally, Shane Ryan, author of The Cup They Couldn't Lose, will chat about a Ryder Cup that the United States definitively lost, but not before a controversy about a man not wearing a hat. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Our new season, One Year 1955, is out now, and in fact, our season finale is coming later this week, so catch up. With me, also in D.C., is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the book's Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. And Joel Anderson, I believe, is listening to us from Houston this week and pondering such existential questions as, is it worse to lose to West Virginia or to give up 55 points to Ole Miss? Some questions just don't have good answers, Stefan. No, they don't. Poor Joel. What about poor Josh? Oh, poor Josh. Thank you. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, Kevin Clark of ESPN is going to stick around. We're going to talk about DeMar Hamlin's uh, return for the Buffalo Bills and the calls, the push to ban the push, the tush push, the brotherly shove, the thing that the Eagles do on fourth downs. Uh, To hear that conversation, you have to be a Slate Plus member. As a member, you get bonus segments on this show, on other Slate shows, and you get ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts. Plus, you get to support us. Slate.com slash hangup plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash hangup plus. There was a lot of starlight at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey on Sunday, and more than one question emerged. Did Travis Kelsey have a sleepover at Taylor Swift's swank Manhattan pad? Is Tavis on the rocks? The maybe couple left the stadium with their respective posses, not each other. Speaking of posses, that luxury suite selfie with Ryan Reynolds, Hugh Jackman, and Blake Lively. Is Tay-Tay joining the cast of Deadpool 3, just one of our wildest dreams? Or should we shake it off? Joining us now is someone who knows the National Football League all too well and was born in or around 1989. It's Kevin Clark. He is the host of the new digital show and podcast. This is football for Omaha Productions and ESPN. You should all subscribe, watch, and listen. Kevin, congrats on the new shows, and welcome to this old one. Who generated a controversy over Travis Kelsey just doing the standard flight back to Kansas City instead of leaving with Taylor Swift? Because I feel like that seems like something's lost in translation (laughs) there with how football teams operate after road games, but that's okay. (laughs) So is the New York Post's exclusive <laughs> reporting about Kelsey doing the walk of shame on Sunday morning. Shouldn't Travis have been sleeping at the hotel? That, with the mechanics of how football teams operate, that is more believable than Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey would have left the stadium together when normally they just go straight to the airport. Normally, a little peek behind the curtain here, uh, normally they do TSA at the stadium. Yeah. And then and then they, they get on the private jet. Yeah. And so, or the, the charter jet. And so Taylor probably mm. could not have even come into the 
security perimeter. Um, you can see people. There's like a tunnel in a room where you can see family, but you cannot leave with someone who's not. Like I remember I was in London one time and a family member had to fly back on a plane. And it was like, uh, I think it was the Dolphins that year. And it was like the biggest like pain in the world to get someone who's not a player, not a team employee on the plane. I remember security talking about that. So the idea that Taylor would be with them, not, not a thing. So uh, the, the, the Saturday night thing is uh, let's phrase that as more believable. Kevin Clark, you know, a lot of sympathy from the audience about how when you're in London and you can't get your families to <laughs> your family to get through the private like TSA hey, the, thing. The, the tw- no, I just remember the 2015 Dolphins. I remember it was in the tunnel and I was waiting for Indomitian Sue and they were, I don't even remember who the player was, but someone's wife didn't have a flight back and they were like, oh my God, this is going to take, this is going to take an hour to figure out how to get, how to get a, a seat. They're on still the in London to this day. They probably play for, they probably just play <laughs> for the Jaguars now. They had no, they had no other option. Before you did that intro, Stefan, I was actually going to make a point that I feel like we're just on like a kind of kindergarten level here. Like on Saturday yeah. Night Football, I was very disappointed. It's like, wildest dreams. Cheer, Captain. We got to get yeah. some more like deep cuts. I was asking our colleague Madeline, and she was like, you should reference Mary's song, Oh My, 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 in which there's a lyric, I'll be 87, you'll be 89. I'll still look at you like the stars that shine. Like if Collinsworth is dropping that in the second quarter, then I would have some respect. It's just like pick the most popular song and just like drop it in as a pun. I mean, Kevin, you're a pun guy. Mm-hmm. You you must be disappointed in what you've seen out of whether it's Stefan or the rest of the American yeah. news media here. I would be probably more disappointed if I was a Swifty. I, I've listened to probably less than 30 of her songs would be my guess. <laughs> and so less than 200 I'm totally, songs. <laughs> I'm totally like out of my depth. Like there, there are really famous songs that I just would not be able to identify um, entire albums worth. And so mm-hmm. my wife is not a Swifty. I'm not a Swifty. And so um, it's been hard for me. I, I, I would, I appreciate a good pun, but I'm completely out of my depth on the actual musical part of this. But I feel like Stefan, both NFL fans and Taylor Swift fans are kind of being in- insulted. It's just like, here, Taylor yes. Swift fans, this is a bu- this is what's called a ball, like, and it has like seams on mm-hmm. it. Like, teach them like, the cover too. Teach them like what a, you know, uh, collision low crossers. You know, these people are very smart, yeah. and they want to learn. They do want to learn. Learn. I mean, that was that was my biggest thing when this was all happening last week, and everybody was like, oh, I'm doing it. De-. Like it was all these kind of reductive. Oh, we're doing a deep dive into Patrick Mahomes. Is no. What's going to happen is the Swifties are going to speed run all of football <laughs> knowledge and advance the discourse. If this, if this continues on another month, we're going to have like analytics discussions we've never had before. We're just going to move the ball so much forward because the Taylor Swift Reddit pages are just going to – they move so quickly that we're just going to have new ways to unlock defenses and ha- get Travis Kelsey open in the open field. Andy reads under a lot of pressure. <laughs> and let me just say, after Sunday night's performance, the Swifties may be abandoning the Chiefs. Kelsey was pretty much a non-factor in the Chiefs' 23-20 win over the Jets. Patrick Mahomes, who's been dragged into the swift vortex with reports that his wife Brittany is a new gal pal of the pop goddess, Mm. completed just 18 of 30 passes for 203 yards through two interceptions. The Chiefs have been playing along with the Tavis story, Kevin, but dare I say, is it already becoming a distraction? 
There's no such thing as a distraction <laughs> in football. And I, I will go back to a line. I believe Bart Scott said when he was a player, the only teams that are distracted are teams that are distracted by being bad. And so a team like the Chiefs cannot be distracted. Doesn't happen. Doesn't work like that. Um, there are teams have gotten in fist fights literally the week of the Super Bowl and then won the Super Bowl. There are no distractions. So this was an abysmal game. But yeah. the Jets defense is really talented and really good. Uh, Mahomes always has these sort of games. The Chiefs offense do in week three last year. They lost to the Colts um, and the Colts team fired their coach a couple weeks later, replaced them with Jeff Saturday famously. This was just brutal, but I don't think it has much to do with with Taylor Swift, with Travis Kelsey, with with any of that stuff. It was just kind of a breakdown at all levels. The way that by the way, they won, but the, the way the Jets were able to cover those guys downfield, Mahomes was just fast enough to, to break their back. I think it's interesting. I don't know if you guys heard Collinsworth last night said that Mahomes is actually kind of laughing at this and it's making his life easier because he gets off the bus and it used to be Patrick, Patrick, Patrick. Now it's Travis, Travis, Travis. So the idea that Mahomes feels less famous is probably a good thing in his life, um, just knowing how alarmingly normal Mahomes is. And I, my guess is having spent limited time with him that the last five years have been a very strange journey for him. And so to have someone else on that ride now with him alongside him is probably slightly helpful. Um, but no, I do not, I do not believe this was anything other than a weird first month of the season performance from the Chiefs, which we've seen many times over the past four years. I wonder if it's going to become like a new competitive advantage for teams to scout guys who maybe wouldn't get drafted but are like dating someone really famous just to kind of bring them in as a sort of you know to take the pressure off of uh -huh. the rest of the guys on the roster so the packers uh have a safety jonathan owens mr simone biles yeah exactly right and so like again that's a competitive advantage too is you bring him in if the chiefs just got into a situation where everybody they had uh, on their roster was married or dating someone extremely famous, Patrick Mahomes <laughs> would be the least famous person on the team, or at least least notable. You have Simone Biles in, you know, in the team hotel. You have Taylor Swift around, and like all of a sudden, Mahomes can can go in and out as he pleases. So the whole like Zach Wilson discourse is something that we should discuss. Um, you have Joe, Joe Namath wing, and basically, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I think it's basically Zach Wilson is trash, I think is kind of... What he said, mm -hmm. I wonder if in the long term for the Jets, it will actually turn out to be a bad thing that he looked semi-competent on Sunday night, that maybe mm -hmm. if he was like as bad as he had been, they would have been pressured to make a move. And maybe now they're going to talk themselves into, the, oh, yeah, you know, he made some good throws. Maybe we're going to like stick with this guy and he's going to you know lead us to six mm -hmm. and 11 record. All right. So first of all, I could not believe anybody credulously passed on a report that Aaron Rodgers is going to return this season. Even though Aaron Rodgers said that, I like Aaron Rodgers. He says a lot of things. And the idea he could come back from an Achilles injury. And I always love like teams sort of just incidentally reporting that they believe that they've they've solved medicine. So like this <laughs> happened a couple of uh, years ago. I don't know if you guys remember T Higgins got hurt and the Bengals were like, well, this injury calls for whatever it is, eight weeks, but we believe it'll be four weeks because we think he heals faster than the normal human. Literally, that was the report. I swear to God, I'm not exaggerating. There must be some people that heal faster. How do you know that? Like, how did you, how do you, you diagnose teenagers as someone who heals? Amino acids? Who, I don't know. <laughs> and so the idea that an Achilles injury, and listen, there have been great strides made with like ACLs and like, 
if you've ever read, and I'm I'm sure at least one of us has here, uh, or two of us have, uh, Paper Lion. I remember there was a part there about ACLs, and like basically that was a death sentence, right? Like you tore your ACL, and it's like, all right, buddy, time to time to start selling insurance, and now you can come back within a calendar year, which is an incredible marvel. Um, but an Achilles injury is an Achilles injury, and we have not moved the ball on that nearly as much as as other injuries. Rogers not going to come back this season. I thought that that report was to guard frankly, against Josh, what you were talking about, where they go out and they get Kirk Cousins or something like that, where they don't talk themselves into it. But I think they've done enough, whether that's between Rodgers saying he's going to come back, Zach Wilson looking at a competent quarterback. He was getting rid of the ball quickly. The weird thing about, about Zach, I'm not sure I've ever seen this before, is normally in every fan base. So like Justin Fields is not playing well right now, but there's a, I don't know, 15 to 20% of the Bears fan base who still truly believes that Justin Fields is going to break out. He's going to be an MVP candidate at, at any moment, right? Or next year is the year. Zach Wilson within the Jets fan base was polling at 0%. Everybody gave up on him. There was no, not even a sliver of objective data or tape saying that he was going to be a competent NFL quarterback. And now, um, and and we have it all the time. This is, he was not Tua or Josh Allen where he played Okay, but made a ton of mistakes. This was just a guy who wasn't making NFL throws. Now to to sort of go against that, to turn the tide of your career as an NFL quarterback that dramatically to the point that if if he is a average NFL starter going forward, it's nothing short of a football miracle. He looked pretty good. I mean, one that's the smallest sample size possible. He lo- he looked like somebody who could play in the NFL, which he has never actually looked like for more than a quarter or so in the previous sample sizes. But the Jets certainly know that. And the Jets also know what the realities are with Achilles tears, particularly for quarterbacks in their 50s. Um, Would this stop them from going out and making uh, some sort of change? Or or have we just like written off the season anyway, so let's just ride the wave of Joe Namath Zach yeah. Wilson, Aaron Rodgers sitting in the in the box watching the game, pretending that he cares. I think they had already written off going out and getting a stopgap. Somebody like Kirk Cousins, somebody like Ryan Tannehill. I think they should have had uh, should have had those thoughts as soon as it happened. Colin Kaepernick, who offered his services. Hmm. Hmm. Any three of those guys would be better, including Kaepernick, than what we've seen by and large from Wilson. That's not true. Like Ryan Tannehill's played pretty badly this year. He was actually, they, they, they won by three scores yesterday um, because the Bengals are imploding, but by and large, almost anybody would be an upgrade over Zach Wilson. I think Zach Wilson is the worst, is still the worst starter in the NFL by, by a significant degree. You can cut the jets a little bit of slack because they literally did go out and get Aaron Rodgers to solve this problem. They should have had a better backup. I believe that they believe that Zach Wilson is the best option here. Part of that is probably the GM that drafted him doesn't want to give up on him. Part of it is just supply and demand. It would take a lot to get a quarterback this time of year. We've seen that. I mean, like the, the guidepost here is the Sam Bradford trade a couple of years ago where basically the Vikings had to, to mortgage their future um, just to get a guy like Sam Bradford once training camp started. I would go out and get anybody just because at some point you lose the locker room. At some point you lose the defense. At some point you lose Garrett Wilson. At some point you lose Dalvin Cook. Um, anybody who's good on that team knows they're being let down by their quarterback. That's why I'd go out and get anybody or start Trevor Simeon or give him a chance or give him more reps in practice. There's so many options you could do. If I'm the Jets, what happened on Sunday doesn't change anything. 
uh, at all. Um, but I think it has changed over the past couple of weeks. And I think that they're, they are, they're stuck with Zach Wilson because they want to be stuck with Zach Wilson. Um, let's talk about one more game and then we'll do a little bit more in our Slate Plus segment. But the game that probably had the most, I'm not going to say implications, it's an early regular season game, but a game between teams that have championship aspirations was Bill's Dolphins. Um, also, DeMar Hamlin's return to the field and the Dolphins being the team, Kevin, that I think you identified as the greatest collection of offensive talent ever. Uh, assembled in the best. The, the, I said they, I said best team in history of, of sports and yes. unbeatable. Yes, especially in Buffalo. I said so, I said especially in Buffalo. So yeah. what happened? Um. So I'm obviously joking. I, I I left open the possibility many times that um the Bills could win this week. And and I, not to go back to this and not to be kind of a nihilist about this, but there are the first six weeks of the season when you talk to players on good teams since the 2011 CBA where training camp essentially became stripped down. I guess you could say Um, the first six weeks have been very weird and have been an extended version of, of the preseason where teams are still working on things and all that stuff. And so sometimes there are bad results. Sometimes you have to throw results out. I think what this was yesterday was the bills announcing that they're still in the AFC picture, which I never doubted, but there were some people who said the window was closed. What was most alarming to me, if you're a Dolphin supporter, of which I am not, but I certainly am, am excited to see their progress under Mike Daniel, who I think is an awesome play caller. But what was alarming to me is that they out-Dolphined the Dolphins. They turned the Dolphins into a team that seems like they're playing the Dolphins. What I mean by that is that Stefan Diggs scored on three, uh, three plays where he had motion, I think last week we decided that Mike McDaniel invented motion um, three weeks ago, and now the Bills are using it. Um, They caused the Dolphins to miss a ton of tackles, which is normally what the Dolphins do to opposing defenses. And so I don't believe in statement wins on October 1st, but I do believe the statement that the Bills are not only here, but they can score a bunch of points and that they still have Vaughn Miller coming back midseason off of an ACL. Like the Bills are a really good team. And I've used this analogy before, but I remember that uh, I was listening to a podcast with a music manager before who, who just specialized in getting guys, getting bands and acts who the music industry had given up on too early, like train and stuff, and then having a lot of success with it. And I always feel like we do that in football where we always write off a team a year too early or we get bored with the team and we say, ah, oh, well, you know what? Uh, the, the Bills have been around for three years. They haven't won the Super Bowl, haven't made the Super Bowl. Let's just write them off. And, and there's no reason to do it other than the media hype machine moves on. And I think that, that a win like Sunday, um, again, makes the statement as much as you can on October 1st uh, that the Bills are still here. And the reason it's a real statement is that the Dolphins dropped 70 points yes. on a terrible Denver Broncos team the week before. I mean, the expectation was that they're going to do this every week now. And Tyreek Hill's going to score three touchdowns and catch 190 yards worth of of football. I mean, I think the thing that's so fascinating about the Dolphins, Kevin, is that especially with that 70 point result, which is just kind of historic in the NFL and with the speed that they have and with, you know, Tua looking like the best quarterback in the NFL, that there was something about them that seemed inevitable and, and unstoppable just in a small sample size, but also just for a team that just looks so good right now mm-hmm. how tenuous it is because anything that happened any small hit on Tua his career could be over like mm-hmm. it, it just seems like 
I mean, obviously, they're not going to probably score 70 points again, but it just seems like maybe we'll look back at it and think there was just a four-week period when the Dolphins looked they were, like they were going to run the NFL. It just seems like there's not any kind of guarantee that Tua will get through the year healthy. And then what does this team look like? Yeah, but I also think that that's true of a bunch of quarterbacks. Look, look what's happening with Joe Burrow right now, where, where the, the Bengals' offense is completely broken because Burrow, again, has a calf injury and he can't get past it. But, I mean, isn't Tua more existential? I mean, he's yes, openly yes. talked about thinking he might never play again. Yes. And another hit could end his career. I completely agree. I think that's a case of, I, I'm, and this is not, not, to, not to pivot, but like his contract is one of the most fascinating test cases maybe I've ever seen because I don't know what you do. You're probably going to have to pay him 45 to $55 million a year, depending on what happens. And how do you structure that on a guy, as you said, who has said that he's has openly wondered whether or not his career could continue, has been on the turf in a very scary situation on Thursday night last year against the Bengals. It's as interesting a question that I've ever seen as far as how to proceed with a guy like that. Because I don't think, and, and maybe I'm wrong here, I don't think there's been a guy this young and this talented who've had that sort of existential question in his career, especially one who hasn't signed a contract extension, especially one who I think seems like he's in an inflection point in his career where over the next month he could become a top five quarterback in the NFL or come back down to earth. There's so many questions about that. I do not believe the sort of puff stuff over, I wouldn't call it a puff piece because it was mostly just podcasts and TV, but it was puff stuff um, about him learning jujitsu so he knows how to fall. That's not, you know, who's not learning jujitsu, or maybe they are, but like defensive ends who are driving him into the ground. You can't learn how to fall when there's a 310 guy driving you into the ground in a lot of cases. So I completely agree that it is extremely concerning what's what his past looks like. And I, I worry every time he touches the field, but. I've talked to him about this. He feels comfortable going out there. Those guys are just wired differently. Like we always do this all the time. It's something I talk about all the time where this happened actually a couple of weeks ago where Marvin Harrison Jr. is going to be the a top five pick. Got, got a little banged up in an Indiana game. And there was all these people on Twitter who were like, well, if I'm Marvin Harrison, that's the last thing. That's the last college snap I take. And it's like, well, is anyone seems like they like playing football, you know? And like a lot of times we sit here and we go, oh, you know, I, if I'm him, I, I would just, you know, go go preserve my health, whatever. And it's like, well, these guys actually love playing football. We are so wired differently from from those guys. It's people it's like people who like surfing, people who like skateboarding, whatever it is, they're addicted to it. And and I kind of feel like any player at this stage in their life is addicted to football. I'm addicted to watching football. And so I think that any conversation about their health is deeply personal, but I, I completely agree with you that, um, that it all seems very tenuous in, on a grand scale. We're going to talk some more with Kevin Clark in the bonus segment for Slate Plus members. Kevin hosts This Is Football. It is a YouTube show. It is a podcast, and it is for ESPN's platforms. Subscribe, watch, listen. Kevin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. Up next, it's Ben Golliver of The Washington Post joining us to talk about the big trade of Damian Lillard to Milwaukee.
In July, after 11 seasons in Portland, Damian Lillard requested that the Blazers trade him away. And Lillard, who averaged a career-high 32 points last season, had only one destination in mind, Miami. Last week, Lillard both did and did not get his wish as he was dealt to Milwaukee, which as all sorts of confused explorers would tell you, is basically the same thing as Miami. Joining us now is Ben Golliver. He writes about the NBA for The Washington Post, and he talks about the NBA on the Greatest of All Talk podcast. If you're interested, their emergency pod about the Lillard trade is out from behind the paywall, so you can try before you buy. Ben, thanks as always for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, everybody says the breeze on Lake Michigan in January is just like South Beach, right? (laughs) Uh, So despite Milwaukee not having a South Beach, um, from an I want to win an NBA title perspective, going to Giannis's team seems like maybe the best possible thing for Damian Lillard. And it's also going to keep Giannis happy, one would think, after he started talking publicly about the Bucs needing to commit uh, to winning for him to stick around. So I think for both players, this seems like a win from an on-court perspective. For both players and for the Milwaukee Bucks, for sure. And I think really what this trade did was it it totally changed the narrative of this NBA offseason. Um, typically, we get our news and our headlines on July 1st, not like October 1st. I mean, this has been a long wait as Portland kind of dragged its feet and tried to get the best offer for Damian Lillard. But the story of the offseason had been... The NBA institutes this new salary cap framework, which it's not quite a hard cap, but it's leaning towards a hard cap. And there was a real question about had any of the best teams in the league actually gotten better this year, or did they just tread water or maybe you know come back to earth a little bit during the offseason? And there's kind of this parity effect where even a team like Denver that wins the title loses a key player in Bruce Brown, and, and there wasn't really any obvious offseason winners. And I think with this Damian Lillard trade for Milwaukee and then the subsequent trade of Drew Holiday going to Boston, we can now say two of the top teams in the league, uh, the, the Celtics and the Bucks, who have kind of fomented this rivalry here over the last four or five years, have both taken a step forward and really improved their championship odds. I think in Milwaukee's case to start, because it's the juicier trade, there's no question about it. It's a really nice marriage of kind of... Uh, I would say incomplete pieces, right? Like Damian Lillard's not the world's best defensive player, but he's a really electric scoring guard with a a penchant for big playoff shots and and being able to come through in clutch situations. That just happens to be exactly what Milwaukee has missed over these last couple of years since they won the 2021 title. Their offense always grinds down uh, during the postseason, and they often have to turn to Giannis, who's not the world's most creative offensive player in the big moment. So it's a perfect fit in terms of what Lillard does uh, and, and what the, uh, the Bucks have lacked. And then you flip it, uh, Lillard has needed front court cover for like his entire career in Portland. They've had terrible defenses for years and years. And now he gets to go to a Bucks team that has Giannis, who's kind of a perennial defensive player of the year candidate, as well as Brooke Lopez, a really solid center inside defensively. And Chris Middleton, who, if he's back healthy, ha- has been one of the better two-way wings, uh, you know, both offensively and defensively uh, throughout his prime. So it's a nice cover for Damian Lillard, who probably is not going to be able to play any defense, even if you asked him, now he has to play less than he's probably ever had to during his career. It seems like Giannis gets exactly what he wants and needs here. And it's not clear from the reporting that we've seen so far just how active Giannis was behind the scenes, either in lobbying his own front office or in back-channeling with Damian Lillard and Lillard's agent Aaron Goodwin to make this happen after it was clear that the Trailblazers didn't want to or weren't going to uh, accede to Lillard's request to trade him to Miami. 
Now, it always cracks me up when people respond to every interview that uh, Giannis gives or every podcast he appears on where he makes it clear that it's his goal to win and he's trying to apply all this pressure to the Milwaukee Bucks front office. Trust me, the Milwaukee Bucks front office knows that Giannis has wanted to win for his entire career. I mean, he has improved more during the scope of his NBA career, you could argue, than any superstar player in the modern era if you look at where he started and where he showed up and also how gradual each step he's taken in the course of that development. This is a guy who's fully committed to winning, fully committed to his craft, and he just wants uh, to be surrounded by like-minded people. I think with Lillard, even though people do tend to focus on, oh, he makes this trade request. Oh, he's a rapper. Lillard's actually a really focused, uh, dedicated type guy himself. I mean, he built himself up from a very, you know, lightly regarded high school recruit. He goes to small school, Weber State. He uh, spends quite a number of years there kind of getting himself ready for the NBA from a physical standpoint, getting a shot to an NBA level. And then boom, he comes into the NBA and he's ready to be rookie of the year from day one. So this is a guy who I think shares Giannis's love for the grind. And it's a nice marriage for these two guys because you could make a case that Milwaukee was getting a little bit stale. I mean, their offense was no better than average last year. Certainly, Lillard would have killed for stale because Portland's like three or four years removed from really being uh, competitive, and they've been in a little bit of a downward and cost-cutting cycle. So both these guys are going to kind of reinvigorate each other's title chances. And I think it's going to be you know, one of the most exciting teams we've seen from Milwaukee during my lifetime. I and mean, this is a, a team, when they were actually good, you know, it was tending to do it on the defensive end, grinding out victories. It didn't always look pretty. And I think now they have a chance to really be an exciting team offensively and uh, you know, a, a real bear to play against on the defensive end as well. Ben, uh, when we talk about basketball IQ, that's generally um, thought of as an on-court compliment. Let's talk about the basketball IQ of Giannis and Dame from a trying to maneuver <laughs> into, you know, the scenario that you want in terms of being in a particular city or on a particular team with particular teammates. You know, Dame, there's a kind of TikTok by Chris Haynes that has a lot of pro-Dame spin in it about how Joe Cronin, the, you know, head of basketball for Portland, did him dirty, that you know, he tried to rescind the trade request when it became clear that he wasn't going to get to Miami. Um, just speaking from pure, purely like strategic reasons, if Dame wanted to go to Miami, did he go about this in the wrong way? Is there something that he could have done to engineer the scenario that he wanted? Or, I mean, obviously NBA teams can trade players wherever they want to trade them like is was it just folly for him to even think that he could maneuver in this way or you know have we just been kind of convinced by the Kevin Durant's of the world like there are definitely scenarios where star players have been able to get what they want and that just has seemed like the default so it's kind of feel surprising that the you know what he wanted didn't end up coming to pass no, I hear you. I mean, I think part of that is that he's not on Kevin Durant's level in terms of influence and star power. And I think the more influence and star power you have in the NBA, the better chance you have as a player of being able to have your cake and eating it too. Let's keep this in mind. If he had really wanted to go to Miami, he wouldn't have signed a contract extension, a very lengthy and lucrative contract extension last summer, because then he would have had more leverage, or he at least would have been able to make the threat that I'm going to be leaving here. So you've got to, uh, you know, you've got to accede to my trade request. That, that all the specifics of it, right? It is funny when guys like when like James Harden opts in to a contract with the 76ers, and then is mad that he's on the 76ers. 
isn't that largely because they know that they can that these contracts are fungible and movable at this point? I mean, no one's really yeah. making a commitment to the team they sign with. And and I wonder, Ben, in Lillard's case, was limiting his request to Miami a strategically wrong and b basketball wrong why Miami well first of all the NBA is a goofy place you guys have stumbled <laughs> upon the right uh conclusion here this is really backwards it's strange it creates all sorts of different scenarios but the one thing we have seen is that there's actually a very efficient trade market for superstars what the Blazers were ultimately able to get for Lillard is almost identical to what the Cavaliers gave up to get Donovan Mitchell from the Jazz. Both those guys are sort of like perennial all-star type guards. I think Lillard's better than Mitchell, but they're in the same general ballpark, uh, especially when you're factoring into account, you know, Mitchell's a little bit younger. And so, you know, ultimately the teams that are trading these superstar players are rarely being completely hung out to dry. But I do want to re- reverse to one point here, which is Lillard's top priority was getting paid because he took the extension, right? His secondary priority was, oh, I want to go to Miami. There were other ways for him to play this if he was just dead set on, I have to be a member of the Miami Heat. He was trying to have his cake and eat it too, and he didn't quite have enough juice or influence to be able to make that happen. The reason why is Miami just didn't have enough interesting stuff for Portland uh, you know, to, to want in return. I think there would have been a way had Miami been sitting with a center like DeAndre Ayton, who Portland could pitch as being a central piece of its rebuilding effort. Okay, this is a guy who makes a lot of sense for the Blazers, but they didn't have that piece. Their best trade piece was Tyler Hero, and Portland already has a full collection of young scoring guards who don't play defense. They don't need another one, right? Yeah, that's partly my point, though. I mean, if he was so insistent on Miami, his agent, Aaron Goodwin, should have known that that's not a likely trade destination. I mean, I'm sure they wanted to rope in a third team to make this viable. But just from a basketball perspective, going back to what I asked you a minute ago, it's like, why was he so dead set on Miami? I mean, this is an okay team that made a surprising run to the NBA Finals. Wow. That, that no, what? <laughs> They're not, right? I mean, this is not like... Making the finals is like only two, only two out of the teams make it there. So you kind of have to, by definition, be pretty good. (laughs) And they, they also made the finals other times recently. Not like they blew through the regular season or have a roster that you look at and go, oh my God, they're going to be perennially great. There's no Giannis on that team. Uh, Stefan, I'm seeding your point. I actually think Milwaukee is a better basketball fit than uh, Miami is for Lillard's skill set. I think Giannis is a better, you know, co superstar for yeah. Lillard than Jimmy Butler is. I think the idea of why he would want to go to Miami, though, it can't just be looked through basketball terms. I mean, these guys are millionaires. Millionaires want to go live in Miami. Miami is a pretty cool place, and it becomes this holistic decision. And I also think that Miami's stock as an organization was sort of at an all-time high coming into the summer, right? Because they're manufacturing this finals run with Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, two perennial all-stars, but also a whole bunch of role guys who are just stepping up and playing amazing basketball, creating this culture that's you know so magnetic. And meanwhile, Milwaukee kind of fell on its face a little bit in the first round against the the Miami Heat and maybe their stock uh you know was was dropped a little bit and they got overlooked but I think when we're stepping you know all the way back we could say Lillard's going to be very happy in Milwaukee. I've heard he's happy with how this resolved. Portland did right by Lillard, quote unquote, in terms of trading him to a place where he's going to have a chance to win his first title. And I think it's going to be a great culture fit, you know, small market. I've heard from a lot of Blazers fans who are actually happy for Bucks fans because they feel a kinship in this war against the big market teams or the glamour franchises like hmm. the Lakers and the Heat. And so uh, I think it's going to be all well that ends well, as long as Lillard can stay healthy and stay productive as he progresses through his mid 
mid-30s, I think we're going to look back and kind of the sliding door moment, you're going to be right. It's just, you know, this was a a better opportunity uh, for Lillard than the alternative of going to Miami, maybe being in the shadow of a team that has made the finals twice previously and not having as much depth around their big three as Milwaukee's going to have around, uh, you know, Lillard, Middleton, Lopez, uh, and Antetokounmpo. All right, so Boston now has Drew Holiday kind of in the Marcus Smart role. He's probably overqualified for the Marcus Smart role, I would say, despite Smart being a great um, defensive player and being a really important um, piece on a team that, similar to the Miami Heat, has made the NBA Finals. And they also have Porzingis. They've got Tatum and and Brown. Um, This is a team that seems stacked along the lines of how the Bucks are stacked, and you will potentially have, you know, Drew Holiday going up against his old team in a kind of straight-up challenge match where he would be guarding Damian Lillard. Well, the best part is it's a grudge match, kind of rematch, potentially, because Holiday really made his name locking down Damian Lillard in the playoffs when he played for the Pelicans and Lillard was first getting into that postseason groove with the Portland Trailblazers. And Holiday just had a phenomenal series. Lillard didn't look like himself. And that really elevated his reputation as being arguably the best perimeter defender in the NBA. Now you have these two trade centerpieces on these two Eastern Conference powers who there's no question about it. Holiday would get that defensive match. matchup in the Eastern Conference Finals, the NBA should be crossing its fingers and praying for that. It would be an incredible series. Those two teams have played some great series in the recent past. Unfortunately, their most recent matchup in 2022, Middleton was injured, so it wasn't uh, you know exactly a fair fight, but Boston won in a really entertaining Game 7 uh, scenario. So, I think that's what everybody is expecting now. I think the story of this Eastern Conference landscape has been written. These two teams have invested enough. Uh, Miami and Philadelphia come out looking like losers because they weren't able to make big additions this offseason, and it winds up being kind of a two-horse race. I think from Boston's standpoint, this is classic Brad Stevens. I like to say that this guy is sort of a white New Balance sneaker executive, very practical type of guy. And he was wearing those kinds of New Balances, those dad shoes uh, when he was walking around the NBA bubble. But the Porzingis trade to me fell out of character from Brad Stevens' track record because it's sort of this high ceiling, high risk type move that may or may not work out. Drew Holiday is like a classic Brad Stevens move. Just like the Al Horford trade, you're getting a known quantity, a defense first type player. Uh, Yeah, Derek White, exactly. Or even the Malcolm Brogdon trade last summer, which didn't work out great for him, but that's all in the same vein of of how Brad approaches things, and they're now going to be in a position where I think they can have the best five-man defensive group in the NBA during the playoffs. If they play Derek White, Drew Holiday, Tatum, Brown, and Horford, that's super versatile, super high IQ, very physical, uh, you know, long, athletic on the wings. That's going to be tough for anybody to score against. And keep in mind, Boston already last year was number two defensively in the league. And I think they actually got better. I think Drew Holiday is a better defensive player right now than Marcus Smart was last year. Um, and I, I think he's going to be a very clean fit. It could take him a month to kind of figure everything out, especially to find that role for Porzingis, because, you know, Boston did change a number of its rotation players. Robert Williams is gone. Grant Williams is gone. Kind of the heart and soul of the team. Previously, Marcus Smart is gone. Uh, But they are loaded. Like you said, that's the right word, Josh. And I think they're going to be able to put it together sooner rather than later. And we haven't said that Drew Holiday scored almost 20 points a game last year with seven assists. I mean, it's not like he's not going to be a contributor on that end of the floor either. They are stacked offensively as well. 
Well, the amazing thing about Drew Holiday and Marcus Smart is that they're loved and hated by their respective fan bases for the same reasons, right? So uh, there's the intense defense, there's getting on the floor, it's forcing turnovers, fan bases love them. But when it comes to the big playoff moments, uh, Marcus Smart would always seem to get the ball in his hands, and he's not the world's best outside shooter. So he would miss a lot of big shots and key moments, and Celtics fans would just rip their hair out and think, why is this guy getting the basketball? It was a similar deal these last couple of years in Milwaukee. Uh, Drew Holiday, for all of his defensive gifts and for his scoring prowess like you described, he has this tendency to go like 4 for 18 in playoff games because he plays huge minutes and is kind of overburdened in his role. Mm. And so they would get in late into these playoff games and Drew would uh, maybe ha- be having uncharacteristic turnovers or you know tough misses and you know drawing the ire of Bucks fans. So it really is this amazing uh, just grafting of all of Smart's uh, gifts and curses. Uh, you know, basically he's out and you're, you're grafting in Holiday to do almost the exact same thing for Boston. I do think he's a better player, but I think the experience from the fan standpoint is going to be nearly identical. I want to end by um, talking about my favorite part of your uh, Greatest of All Talk podcast episode about this, Ben, which is your just absolute hatred of uh, the Phoenix Suns <laughs> and DeAndre Aiden and the three-dimensional chess move that you made by saying the trade was bad for the Suns because they got rid of Aiden and also bad for the Blazers because they acquired Aiden is just like amazing. It, it blew my mind and it actually kind of makes sense. So if you can just like lay that out a little bit for our listeners and just kind of explain how much you hate DeAndre Aiden and if that's a fair term. And also bad bad (laughs) for the Suns because of who they acquired for DeAndre Aiden. Yeah, I don't love the word hate, but I'll just say I'm skeptic. Sports hate. Sports hate. Yeah, sports hate. And here's the situation. You know, prior to the Lillard trade, the biggest deal of the summer, you could argue, would be Phoenix trading for Bradley Beal and his massive contract. And something had to give for Phoenix after they made that deal. And Aiton had had two really sour endings the last two years in the postseason. And it just seemed like there was some friction in terms of how he viewed himself and wanting to have the basketball and being a main cog in what they're trying to do versus how they viewed him, which was essentially like, hey, man, go rebound and play defense and we'll get you the ball every once in a while. And that's a very natural tension for big guys. I don't really begrudge Aiton wanting to have a bigger role. Um, I think their thinking from Phoenix's standpoint was we already had these huge contracts for Beal. Uh, Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. We've got to break up Aiton's contract into like multiple rotation players to get a little bit of depth and potentially have a chance to s- survive for a deep postseason run. And they did that by acquiring Yusuf Nurkic and Grayson Allen in this trade. But Grayson Allen has not been a very good postseason player in years past. And Yusuf Nurkic has missed more games than he's played. If you look over the last four seasons due to injuries, he's just basically never on the court. So maybe their logic was right in terms of why they're trying to trade Aiton, but the actual product of that they're bringing in are not going to be very helpful by the time we get to April and May. And so I think in this scenario, I would have just bit the bullet and kept Aiton if that was the best I could come up with on a trade. Now, the reason why I don't love it from Portland's standpoint is, number one, and this is not Aiton's fault, you have this curse of all the big men in in Portland going back to Bill Walton (laughs) getting injured, Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan, Greg Oden over Kevin Durant. And you have a player with Aiton who's going to step into that lineage and Blazer Maniacs 
love the hardworking players, right? They love the Jerome Curseys, you guys might remember from the 1990s, right? They love the Nicholas Batums, uh, you know, from the more recent past, the guys who are just willing to kind of lay all out and do it for the team. And that's just part of being that small market fan base. I happen to be from the Portland area, so I hear this a lot from fans. Aiton is not that guy. And so he is really <laughs> going to come in with a lot of talent, with the the um, attention of being a former number one pick, a guy who was drafted over Luka Doncic, a guy who is really going to expect and probably will get a lot of touches and, and score a lot of points. But I just think that, um, you know, his if you want to call it blasé approach to the sport is eventually going to kind of come back to bite him. And this could be a, a tough cultural fit for the, the fan base. That's going to say, Hey man, you're making a whole bunch of money. We gave up Damian Lillard to get you in this trade. We want you to produce wins like a uh, franchise player. And I just don't think he's that good. I, I think he could be an above average center, but I don't think he's like a rock solid centerpiece to this deal. Do you think he could be better than Sam Bowie? Oh, for sure. Uh, but <laughs> well, there you, you go. Know, that's what yeah. done. Look, the deal was a success. It's, it's funny you say that because now you're pitching this as better than Bowie, which is like the <laughs> worst possible pitch in Portland. There actually used to be a Blazers blog that was called Beyond Bowie, and people it, within the first two weeks were demanding it change its name. It, it launched, and it was like this big deal. I think ESPN was backing it for a while, and there was like a fan movement to try to force them to change the name because they didn't want to have to type in Bowie to get to the website every single day. So Better than Kevin Duckworth, maybe? Ooh, I don't think so. Doug, Duck's a local <laughs> legend. He well, he has his own fishing dock named in his honor in Portland. I don't know if you knew that. He stuck around the Portland no. area after he uh, retired. So I. So legend. you predict Look, that he, Aiden will not have a dock named after him when it's all said and done? Or correct. a blog. <laughs> or, or a blog. Or, or a blog named. Yeah, I would say actually he's going to go 0 for 2 on those two fronts. <laughs> but the good news for Blazers fans they have collected a lot of draft assets in these two trades, right? They wound up getting three first-round picks total between the Drew Holiday trade and the Damian Lillard trade, and they also have two uh, first-round pick swaps. So I think that they came out of this looking okay. They're not completely leveraged on Aiton. It's just hard for me to swallow that that's going to be the face of the trade um, if you're a Blazers fan here in the short term. You're going to have to decide, do you want to spend money to go watch DeAndre Aiton? And I think there's a good chance we get to January or February, and unless this guy is just totally rejuvenated by his fresh start, Blazers fans are going to say, I don't want to go spend a ton of money watching DeAndre Aiden. Ben Golliver writes about the NBA for the Washington Post, and his podcast is the greatest of all talk. Ben, thank you so much. My pleasure. I, I don't know how we got on Beyond Bowie. That's incredible. <laughs> Great callback. <laughs> Up next, writer Shane Ryan on the Ryder Cup. Before this weekend, the United States hadn't won the Ryder Cup on the road in Europe since 1993 when, let's remember some golf guys, Davis Love III defeated Costantino Rocca of Italy to secure the victory. And after this weekend, the U.S. team still hasn't won the Ryder Cup on the road in Europe since 1993. The Continentals raced out to a huge early lead at Marco Simone Golf Club outside of Rome and held on to win Sunday, 16 and a half points to 11 and a half points. Joining us now from his Italian hotel, it's our friend Shane Ryan. He's a contributor to Golf Digest and the author of The Cup They Couldn't Lose, America, the Ryder Cup, and the Long Road to Whistling Straits. He's also the creator and proprietor of Apocalypse Sports Trivia, 
which you should Google and join and try someday to join Josh and me in one of the premier divisions. Hey, Shane. How you doing, guys? And to make it clear, Shane actually owns a hotel in Italy. He's not just staying there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought if I'm going to cover this, I should buy the hotel first. It's probably worth it in the end. So yeah, now I own an Italian hotel. And let me tell you guys, what a headache. What an absolute <laughs> headache. There was there was some good Ryder Cup beef, mostly about a golf cap or the absence of one, which we'll get to. But ultimately, it was another blowout win for the home team, which has become the norm at this event. So much so, Shane, that you wrote in Golf Digest afterward that in modern sport, there is nothing as predictable as a Ryder Cup. The drama is dead. Yeah, you know, it was it was funny because the last four Ryder Cups have followed this very specific formula where... Like you said, the home team blows out the visiting team. It's not close. But what's really weird about it, and this is a mystery that I haven't solved in my head, is that there are three formats in the Ryder Cup of play. The last day is singles, right? Just one-on-one. There's something called four ball, where everybody plays their own ball. And there's something called foursomes, which is alternate shot, where the players alternate eight shots. Well, if you get four ball and singles and you look at it, they play even. The home, There's no advantage. The home team and the visiting team are the same. But an alternate shot, the home team just kills them. It's like seven to one this time, you know, six to two in whistling straights. It's really strange and very weird how it keeps happening this way. So if you were like a robot who came into Italy and like, you know, feed me the data from the last four Ryder Cups and tell me what's going to happen, you would say, well, Europe's going to win, you know, 16 and a half to 11 and a half. Uh, it's going to be basically even in singles and four ball and they're going to kill them in foursomes. And it's exactly what happened. It, it just follows the formula so perfectly that's a decade now, right? There's like 12-year-old kids, so if you're a golf fan, you've never seen a close Ryder Cup, and this is all you've seen. So, look, there's a ton of drama. There is there is some interesting moments and, you know, like a lot of sort of like gossipy moments and things like that, like you alluded to. But when you step back, you're like, man, it's just it, – it's like the most predictable thing. It really is. It's funny because when I didn't know any of that stuff before um, doing a little research for the segment and reading your story – and um, before knowing that, I would have thought, wow, this is like so unpredictable. The crowds are so rowdy. Guys choke. Um, you don't know who's going to be like a, a good player in this format or a clutch player who's going to like totally lose their minds. And so it just seems really strange. And then when you add on to it that it's only one format and even you who like has written a book about this, you can't even understand why that would be. Um, the whole thing just seems... Like, for me, the simplest explanation, even though it's the same every time, is that it's just random chance. Like, sometimes, just by random chance, the same thing happens over and over again. Do you think it's possible that, um, all, despite the fact that this pattern is repeated, that, you know, the next Ryder Cup in the U.S., the next one in Europe, it could all just totally vanish and we could see a totally different scenario? It's possible, right? And you get to the question of what is a statistically significant <laughs> sample size, right? Like it is a three day event, which is the definition of a small city. You know, there's 28 matches within it. So it's not, but then you have like a decade of those and you start to go, well, but there haven't been that is, many Ryder cups. I mean, when you're comparing it to number of, you know, Wimbledon's sure. or number of whatever, no, it's no, like, yeah. the, it's not an event that's happened that many times in like the history of the sport. 70 something. It's true. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. The, the one explanation that there may be, the one practical explanation that may, you know, kind of take it away from the random chance idea is that 
only recently, within the last decade or so, have both teams started really relying on data analysts. Uh, and in terms of like they actually hire a company, they come in and say, okay, like based on like the statistics and the profiles, here's where you, what you should do. You know, with this whole, I should say, the home team has control over the course. They can grow the grass, they can pinch the fairways, they can change the speed of the greens. So there's that kind of stuff that they look at. They look at you know who are your best players, who should you pick for your captain's picks, what players should you pair together. And so there's all that, but in foursomes, it is the most uh, volatile format. And in, in, from what I've heard from every stats person I've talked to, the one that can most be influenced by course setup, which only the home team controls. So that might be an explanation, right? In singles and in four ball, it's a little bit harder to kind of like juice it up a little for the home team. But in foursomes, it may be possible more than ever to to really kind of give yourself a huge advantage. And so that's one explanation. I don't know if it's the right one, but that might account for the kind of wild difference between it. Does anyone care that it's been lopsided for for these last few years? And does anyone sort of looked at like, maybe we should ditch foursomes or maybe we should find some different way to stack this? Because if analytics are doing what analytics have done in almost every sport, which is help to level sort of competition in some ways, sometimes on the fringes, sometimes more dramatically, it seems like there might be an imperative to make this closer so that it's not a 10 point difference the way it was two years ago at Whistling Straits or the five point difference that it was here in Rome. Well, before you hop in, Shane, let me make the case for why this actually isn't that bad. Home crowd goes home happy. You get all these narratives for the next two years of we were just humiliated. So this means more to us and we're going to really come back and it gets people like excited for the next Ryder Cup. And Let's talk about what works about this format. I mean, I've mentioned tennis once already, but like tennis, the Davis Cup has been totally ruined. Like nobody, there are all these different kind of international events, none of which work. This is like the rare example of, in terms of national fervor, in terms of fan interest, in terms of player interest. Like there's so many international sporting events where the top players just refuse to go. And in this case, in golf, the top players actually seem to care. And so... If the one thing that isn't working is that, you know, they're not as close as they used to be, I don't know if it's worth really messing with the format given the like six to eight things that are working about this event. Yeah, you know, it's a great point, Josh, because I I will admit to being a little bummed out on, you know, on Friday when the score is six and a half to one and a half at the end, or it's, you know, after one session on Saturday, it's nine and a half to two and a half. That, after you've I, been I'm waiting so, for this for two years. For two years, right. And you want to think that things are different, right? You want to think that there's like, well, this, the you want to think that the teams can control something, that strategy means something, instead of just saying, well, the fatalistic take of, well, no matter what you do, the home team's going to crush you because, you know, what, whatever the reasons, like the home crowd is too hard for golfers to play against because they're not used to it, right? Or maybe there's some magic in foursomes that we don't understand, but that is really, uh, is really hard to overcome. So you don't want to, the fatalistic thing, I find depressing a little bit in the Ryder Cup. And you look at 1983 to 1999, you could call that the golden age. There were, I think that this is roughly right, but basically seven out of those nine Ryder Cups ended in a 14 and a half to 13 and a half margin, which is the closest possible margin, you know, other than a tie that you can have. So I, I do think there is something you lose when when you have a series of lopsided events. I think sometimes, you know, a blowout can be really interesting because you can look at the captain and say, what do they do? But you've got to go back to the close ones or else, again, you just say, well, it's pretty much written in stone that the home team is going to win. 
but I will say this to your point, even with this blowout, the drama was incredible. And it wasn't really, there was some drama on the course on Sunday for like 45 minutes, but the drama off the course is always nuts because this means so much to so many people that there's fights and there's, you know, the British tabloid guys are stirring up drama. There's all this kind of stuff that's happening and I'm sure we'll get into, but I do think even that if you have enough blowouts in a row and enough people are talking about it, you run the risk of losing that too. So I would not want to destroy the essential nature of the event, but if there are ways you can tweak it, like let's say the home team doesn't have control of the course setup anymore. Let's say we hire a neutral body and they design the course in some kind of neutral way that a special master, a special master, something <laughs> like that. Maybe that's, maybe that's something you can do without, you know, destroying what the Ryder cup is. Let's talk about the drama because we spent all this time talking about the boring thing like course layout. Um, so let's get to Patrick Cantley's no hat um, and dive into that. So that was seemed to be like drama one, like best drama of the weekend. There were some minor, there were some minor beefs too between John Rahm, Brooks Kepka, um, but the hat, let's talk about the hat. So the hat controversy broke uh, was broken by a Sky Sports reporter named Jamie Weir in a series of tweets in which he said, understand from several sources that the U.S. team room is fractured, a split led predominantly by Patrick Cantley. Cantley believes players should be paid to participate in the Ryder Cup and is demonstrating his frustration at not being paid by refusing to wear a team cap. What happened after that? <laughs> it was so funny because it was at the most dull moment of the Ryder Cup. And all of a sudden it was like someone dropped a grenade into the media room, like, <laughs> like this stuff. And, you know, I have to say, I, I want to, I don't know what the truth of this is, but the minute this report came out, it started being debunked by certain people uh, who were hearing from the U S. So like you said, the idea was he's not wearing a hat as a protest for not getting paid. Well, the truth came out or according to them, anyway, the, according to Kelly, the truth came out, he's actually getting married tomorrow in Italy and his wife doesn't want him to have a tan line on his forehead. <laughs> so oh, so this is, this is, this is why he didn't wear a hat. And you know, today, of course, all, a few of the other American players didn't wear a hat as a kind of like a little, like, you know, F you to the fans or whatever. And they would, you know, they were doffing their imaginary hats when they made a putt. So there was that. And then there was a report that, you know, he and Xander Shoffley were sitting apart from the team in the locker room. That tweet got deleted. And there was a, a bunch of people that said that's not true at all. And, and it just goes on and on. It may be that Ke Patrick Cantley wants to get paid more, but this division in the locker room Either it was overstated or this report came out and the American team had an incentive to be like, no, we love each other. Like, it's all a lie, right? Like, and it, But they're saying it's not true. And, and I don't know what Jamie Weir is saying, but it was this very interesting dynamic going on that so far I haven't seen proof of any of these allegations. So that but of course, it became a big deal, it, you know. There was a, a second Saturday afternoon where the Americans finally won a session and were doing well, and the European fans were like, this reporter just galvanized us. He just gave them motivation. We're going to lose this Ryder Cup because of this stupid hat story. So, yeah, that was that was one thing. And, you know, it, it directly led to the fans just heckling Patrick Cantley mercilessly doing the hat thing, uh, which led to, on the 18th hole Saturday, his caddy being so upset that he was shouting back at them and actually, you know, getting in Rory McIlroy's way while he was trying to take a putt, which got Shane Lowry and Justin Rose yelling at the caddy and Rory being furious at the caddy, and then Rory in the parking lot later yelling at a different American caddy, and like all, all of this drama from this hat report, which we have no idea if it's true or not. <laughs> If only any of my tweets ever led to uh, something like this directly 
or indirectly. Truly an amazing constellation of events. The tan line at the wedding thing seems like a cover story to me based on no okay. <laughs> report, based on no reporting. Just my gut gut instinct is that that's made up. Um, but the whole kind of let's zoom, let's zoom out here for a second. <laughs> the larger kind of uh, suggestion or implication here is division in the U.S. team room. And let's just look at this roster of guys, like no Tiger, no Phil, and you have players like, you know, Max Homa, Patrick Cantlay, um, you know, also no Dustin Johnson and no Bryson DeChambeau. It's like kind of for, maybe for me, for more of like a casual golf follower, it's kind of like a weird group of people like that maybe we don't recognize or aren't like, you know, maybe necessarily fixtures at these sorts of events. But like, do these people actually like each other? Is there like a live versus non-live kind of thing? Or some of them just like assholes? Like what what is the like actual dynamic here, even if we take cats out of it? Yeah, I mean, there's only one live guy on either team, and that's Brooks Kepka. And Kepka is kind of an odd one where, you know, he won the PGA Championship this year, and, you know, he was competitive at the Masters, and everybody would always ask him, you know, does this prove something for Liv that you're doing this? And his answer would always be, you know, I don't really want to talk about Liv. All right, like, I just want to talk about myself. I'm just happy for myself, right? So, <laughs> so he was never, like, a main instigator. He was always kind of, like, I don't know if you, if you guys watched the Netflix documentary on it, but he basically thought his career was over because of back and knee injuries and wanted to cash in because he didn't know that he could compete on the PGA tour anymore. And then he got better. And, you know, then he did obviously win a major, but it always seemed like maybe there was some regret uh, in him for like, he kind of wished he was back on the PGA tour once he got healthy. So he is not a divisive figure. And then on the European side, you know, he's the only one on the American on the European side, they actually had rules in place that, you know, these live players who have been such studs in the Ryder Cup in the past, Ian Poulter, Lee Westwood, Sergio Garcia, they had to give up their European tour membership and they couldn't play. And the captain, Henrik Stenson, had to not be captain anymore. Exactly. He was gone and Luke Donald took over, um, which may have been the best thing that happened to Europe, honestly, because Luke Donald was such a good captain. But yeah, so those guys are all out of the picture. So there wasn't a live divide. I think to to an extent, they kind of get along with each other, but golf is a, a sport of selfish, entitled people, right? These are these are people who, when they were kids, like quit baseball because they hated having teammates. Like they hated, <laughs> they hated their teammates letting them down and that they couldn't control everything. And like golf is what they saw. You can't be good at golf unless you're somebody who as a kid would spend eight hours by himself on a range hitting golf balls, right? That's how you become excellent at this sport. Shane, I think you mean they, they quit baseball and or cricket. And or cricket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cricket, soccer, whatever. Um, and so there's always been the case that, you know, some of these golfers aren't going to like each other and they compete against each other for the vast majority of their time out there and then are, you know, thrown together on this team. So the team aspect of it uh, can feel forced. Europe always seems to be better at it than we are. And Europe has the same divisions, but they seem to be better at coming together, whereas the U.S., Many times, they, they kind of avoided it this year, but many times comes off looking like a dysfunctional family, right? There's always backbiting and people going to the media after the Ryder Cup is over to talk about how bad the captain was. And they're just sort of like entitled selfish behavior comes out more than it does on the European side. Uh, but they're getting better. Uh, you know? are, they getting, are they getting better at acting or are they getting better at actually liking each other? I think acting is the only thing that you can do. I mean, I don't think they, like, they're ever going to have a team of people who all like each other. I just think in golf, that's unrealistic. Uh, but yeah, they get better at, you know, faking it for a week. 
which is kind of what you have to do. But the funny thing is with the American team, Paul Azinger had this revelation. He was watching a Navy SEALs documentary, and he learned that they, you know, when they train, they train in groups of six people to foster loyalty and et cetera. And he had played all these Ryder Cups and thought it was ridiculous that there's this kumbaya attitude, all these 12 guys, we have to be friends for the week. And he had the thought, you know, what if only four people have to be friends for the week? And so he gave his player, this is in 2008, he gave his players personality tests and he divided the team into three different pods, like the redneck pod, like the California pod and like some other pod, like the, you know, the nerds or whatever. But basically he was like, you're only going to hang out with these people and you're only going to play with them in the Ryder Cup. So you don't have to be friends with 12 people. You only have to be friends with three people. And that has followed through. And I find it's been very successful. And I always find it funny that the, you know, the great epiphany and the American side is we need to find a way to let these guys be more selfish and isolationist. And, and when they did that, they started winning more. Right. Cause at, in the end, all they really have to do together is chess bump and lift the cup if they win. That's right. And yeah, Europe can do the kumbaya thing. Americans are terrible at it. All right. Maybe we can end by you just giving us a little bit more of a sense of that atmosphere. I did notice that when Europe clinched uh, the cup, when a putt was conceded to Tommy Fleetwood. Always exciting when a championship is won by concession. Uh, an older gentleman jumped in a body of water. I thought that was that was surprising to me and interesting. What were just some of the th things that you saw or what was kind of the, the vibe like out on the course and with the fans and everything? It's great. You know, they it's your the Ryder Cups in Europe are always a little better because just because of the fan culture. They have their songs, you know, I mean, the costumes are insane, like Roman Sentinels and, you know, Vikings and every other thing you can imagine. They're loud. They have a sense of how to intimidate an opponent, which, you know, every American tries to be like, no, we love it when they cheer against us. You know, we think it's great. It's like, no, I think you're petrified of it. I think and I think they intimidate you and overwhelm you. And some of them will admit it. But uh yeah, there's no it, way to make just, other golf tournaments like fun and loud like that or would it just not work and it would be forced and we should just enjoy it during the Ryder Cup and not wish every tournament was like that they coddle the players at the other tournaments so you can't have it but the Phoenix Open has the you know the 16th green I don't know if you've seen that yeah the drunk hole the drunk hole exactly so there's there's that one exception but it's yeah it's not very common so yeah, the environment's great. Like the, the and the European fans are. I mean, they really, really give it to the Americans, but they're clever and they're not really usually crass. And it's it's always fun. It's fun and loud and yeah, truly unique in the sport of golf. Shane Ryan writes for Golf Digest, and if you liked our conversation about the Ryder Cup, you should buy his book about the Ryder Cup. It's called The Cup They Couldn't Lose. It came out last year. Also, join Apocalypse Sports Trivia. It will make your fortnights so much more rewarding. Shane, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. The Ryder Cup, first Ryder Cup, 1927, was held in Massachusetts. Walter Hagen was the U.S. captain. The U.S. team crushed as the home Ryder Cup team crushes. Not always, but 
They did in 1927. Um, nine and a half to two and a half, I believe, was the final score. Yeah, it wasn't Europe back then. That's right. The Europe thing was much later. This was just, just Britain. Yeah. The British team I'm reading from the Ryder Cup's history page sailed on the Aquitania from Southampton, a six-day journey to compete at the Worcester Country Club. Four foursomes, eight singles matches, et cetera, et cetera. The Aquitania, though, Josh, legendary ship. Mm. Commissioned in 1914, served until 1950, did a lot of work during World War I, which was normal, where cruise ships are recommissioned and refitted to be warships, and also in World War II. Yeah, great story. I would recommend the Aquitania's Wikipedia page. Big fan <laughs> of the big ships being converted for use during, during war. Congratulations to the Aquitania. Just yeah. great, great work there. Yeah, it was. And, and really... Had a nice, you know, deconstruction. Everything went well. The boat was very happy when it retired. Josh, what's your Aquitania? Last week, I was riding around D.C. minding my own goddamn business when my front bike tire got caught in some kind of sewer grate that was in the street. The bike wheel stopped. I did not, yada, 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 et cetera, and so forth. I now have a broken left wrist. To be precise, I have a non-displaced fracture of my triquetral bone, the triquetrum being a bone that I had no idea existed, uh, a pyramid-shaped little bastard that's on the pinky side of the hand. According to the 2021 journal article helpfully titled Triquetral Fractures Overview, it is the second most commonly fractured carpal bone, comprising 15 to 18% of all carpal bone fractures. The article continues, triquetral fractures are frequently caused by impaction of the ulnar wrist after a fall on an outstretched hand. Can confirm, anecdotally. I have not yet seen the orthopedist for a full uh, workup. I think they're just busy dealing with Aaron Rodgers' bullshit. I guess that's not an orthopedist. Anyway, I have not seen the orthopedist for a full workup yet. But according to the internet, the prognosis is four to six weeks of immobilization, and then I'll be back doing whatever it is that I do. But forget that. What better guy I'm going to recover than just, uh, just look at professional athletes who have dealt with the same injury? It's sort of like looking at which athletes have your birthday. Norm Van Brocklin. Rusty Staub. The Lopez brothers. With the added bond of shared medical trauma, Stefan. So I don't know if the Lopez brothers have torn an ACL, but I can check. Okay, so shared medical trauma. I feel you, world-renowned harness racing driver Bjorn Goop, who was thrown into the air during a crash in Sweden in January and broke his triquetrum. And I quote, Goop said that he will need a few days of rest, but that his participation in the Prix d'Amérique on Sunday is not in question. Well, screw you, Bjorn Goop. Uh, let's move on. I feel you, motorcycle racer Alex Renz, who crashed in June of last year, broke his triquetrum, and then 10 days later was declared fit for the German GP. Well, screw you too, Alex Renz. Oh, wait, but then we've got an update. A few days after he was declared fit, he withdrew due to worsening pain from his broken wrist. Well, no shit, man. I mean, what can we say? Uh, finally, I feel you, baseball player Gregory Polanco, who fractured his wrist in Dominican winter ball before the 2021 season. According to TribLive.com, his major league team, the Pittsburgh Pirates responded to reports of Polanco's injury with a statement that said he suffered a small non-displaced fracture of the triquetrum bone that would need to be immobilized, naturally. This is how Polanco responded to the team saying he had suffered a small non-displaced fracture of the triquetrum bone. 
First of all, the injury. They said it the wrong way. Polanco said, I never broke my wrist. I had a little flare on my bone. Seems like we have a triquetrum truther here, Stefan. So maybe I didn't break my bone either. Maybe you just have a little flare. So do I feel most akin to the harness racing driver who, after, quote, a few days of rest, was not in question for the Prix d'Amérique? The motorcycle racer who was declared fit after 10 days and then withdrew due to worsening pain, or the guy who broke his wrist and then denied that it ever happened. I think I'm more like the motorcycle guy. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. I will point out that you are podcasting today. You went right back to work. Nothing's stopping you. Little trike. I'm not going to get on my damn bicycle for for a minute, though. <laughs> I, I think that would probably be the uh, the better analogy. Well, you didn't. You, you're saying you didn't have to bike to your closet to record this podcast. <laughs> You've suffered more than your share of sports injuries. I have. In your day. Two ACLs. All four, to, all four to six weeks, basically. Both ACLs, four to six weeks, came right back. Played in the NFL again after my, not again, but after my ACL tears. I mean, you know, seven years and 10 years after my ACL tears or something like that. Um, rotator cuff, tore a rotator cuff playing basketball in my 20s. Kind of stopped playing basketball. No, that's not true. My basketball career really took off at my local gym in Brooklyn, despite my my rotator cuff injury. I feel like we should normalize odd odd number injury layoffs. I'm going to be three to five weeks, maybe three to seven, five to seven. Mm-hmm. Why is it always six to eight, eight to 12? Yeah, yeah. How quickly is Aaron Rodgers going to be back from his uh, torn Achilles? Normally, normally. Kevin Clark, never. Never, yeah. Possibly, but we know that you will be back and riding your bike. Are you concerned about riding your bike again? How long would you say before you actually get on your bike? If your initial medical report was four to six weeks, does that mean four to six weeks back on my bike? Or does that mean avoiding that stupid grate, which definitely shouldn't have been there? Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. It's hard for me to say. Should I talk about driving into a tree a few weeks ago on my bicycle? (laughs) It's it's your show. (laughs) I'm fine. Back wheel popped up. I wasn't going very fast. I'm an idiot. That is our bike accident report for this week. Uh, Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening.